morning. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at this section in the Gospel of John, uh, the section that runs from John 14 to John 17, and we call it the farewell discourse because in these chapters, Jesus has called his disciples and he is speaking uh, to them before his final departure to the cross. Now, there, the theme that we find all throughout uh, this farewell discourse is that Jesus, as he departs, his disciples are sad, they are sorrowful, but Jesus keeps saying, hey, it's better, it's better that I leave. Jesus' departure, as he tells us throughout these chapters, will lead to enhancement, to an enhancement of all the relationships that we have. In other words, when Jesus leaves, the relationships that we have will be taken to another level. And we see this in a number of ways. For example, um, Jesus says, it's better that I leave because everything is gonna get better. For example, with respect to God, right? Jesus says, it's better that I leave because when I leave, what I'm going to do is I'm going to prepare a room for you in my Father's house. In other words, with Jesus' departure, he will call us into the family of God. As Jesus departs to the cross and the resurrection, he will prepare a room for us in the family of God, in the household of God. Jesus is telling us that if I depart, my house will be your house, my life will be your life, and my father will be your father. Further, Jesus tells us on a more practical note, it's better that I leave because now that I leave, what's going to happen is now you will start praying in my name. Jesus says in uh, John 16, 23 and following, that because I'm leaving now, you can use my name in prayer. You know, before Jesus departed, our advocate was always Moses or the prophets or the priests who made sacrifices on our behalf. But now Jesus is saying, because I'm going away, you can now use my name in prayer, right? You see, there's a big difference between requesting something from someone using the name of an employee versus using the name of his son. Jesus is saying, it's better that I leave because now you can pray my name. In other words, in prayer, you can name drop. You can say Jesus. You can pray in and through Jesus' name. And that makes our prayers more powerful, more effective. Further, Jesus says, you know what's going to happen? It's better that I leave because when I leave, you will all receive the Spirit. You all will receive the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was only given to a select few. The Spirit was given just to a few who were appointed for a certain task or a certain office. But now, Jesus is saying, now that I depart, I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit to everyone. We all will have the Spirit and as we heard a few weeks back, when the Spirit comes, he will guide us in all truth. He will bring to remembrance the things that Jesus says, and we will understand and know Jesus more through the Holy Spirit. Not only with respect to our relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but as we heard last week, our relationship with each other among the disciples will be enhanced, will be taken to another level. Right? Before, before Jesus departs, the criteria for love was love as you want, or love whom you preferred, or love as much as the person is lovable. 
But now with Jesus' departure, he takes our relationship with each other to another level. He enhances it. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. So we see with Jesus' departure comes this enhancement of relationships that's only possible after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Everything becomes better. Our relationships become upgraded. You know, it reminds me a lot of salt. Salt, right? Salt has many, many different functions, right? But what do you do with salt? When you use salt and salt sort of dissolves, it, it, it acts in, in many different ways. It, salt can bring out flavor in food. It can heal. It can prevent decay. We use salt to make sure that, that snow, doesn't, um, snow doesn't freeze. We use salt for a number of reasons, right? And what salt does, it enhances everything. It brings it out more, right? And, you know, while I was reading through this and meditating upon it, I thought, man, Jesus is a lot like salt. Now, you're not going to find this in any theological dictionary, okay? You won't find this in any theological book. Jesus, uh, you know, uh, to, to liken him to salt is, is you know, but it, it, it brings out the flavor in things, right? We can have the best, you know, piece of meat, grade five or A5 Wagyu, you know, beef, right? But without salt... It, it doesn't taste like anything, but you use a little salt, and what does it do? It enhances it. It brings out the flavor. And Jesus is saying, listen, when I leave, it's going to be better. Everything is going to be so much better because I'm going to the cross and be raised again, and I'm going to finish this act of salvation. It's better. Now, there is one relationship, however, that we have to explore, as Jesus talks about here in John 15. And that's our relationship to the world. Okay. Now, Jesus enhances everything, right? He upgrades everything. And as he upgrades our relationship to the Father, the Holy Spirit, and to the disciples, so also our relationship with the world will be enhanced. The tension that's between the disciples and the world, Jesus says, is going to be heightened. There's going to be this intensifying of our relationship with the world. And what is our relationship with the world? Jesus makes plain that the world hates us and that this, that this hatred towards us from the world will only be intensified as Jesus departs. And so today, I want to look at this passage that we've read. Uh, it's a very important passage, and I want to explore it and try to bring out a couple of things. And I'm going to ask three questions for us today, this morning. The first question is this. Why does the world hate us? The second question, how can the world still hate us? And the third question, what are we supposed to do? So first, why does the world hate us? Why does the world hate us? Well, the answer is simple. As Jesus tells us, it is because of himself. John 15, 18 to 19 says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus makes plain here, the world hates Jesus 
And because we identify with Jesus, the world will hate us as well. Now, we have to ask the question, why would the world hate Jesus, right? Why does the world hate Jesus? It's not like Jesus is this oppressive military leader, right? He's not going around slaughtering people. Jesus doesn't go around scamming people like Bernie Madoff. He doesn't, you know, make distasteful music like Taylor Swift, right? Why does the world hate Jesus so much? Why would the world hate Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one who came and gave an accurate assessment of the condition of humanity. You see, unlike all the other philosophers and the religious teachers of the world, Jesus is the only one who looked at humanity dead in its eyes, and he says, you are not all right. Jesus says, in fact, you are so morally corrupt, you are so morally depraved that you cannot save yourself. Jesus says the human condition is so bad that you need a savior who is not from among you. Jesus says you are in darkness and what you need is light. Jesus says, morally and spiritually, you are dead. And what you need is new life. Jesus says, this is why I have come. Jesus is the only one who has accurately and honestly assessed humanity for its brokenness and its depravity. Now, this is a message that we as Christians accept. But to the world, this message is quite offensive. It's the one, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, you need a little help on this, right? It's one thing to say, you know what, you can use a little guidance, right? It's one thing to say, you know what, with a little enlightenment, I think you'll be okay. But to say, you're totally incapable, to say, hey, you failed in every possible way, to say the only right way you can get the only way that you can get right with God is through the violent and horrific and dreadful cross of Jesus. This is actually offensive. This is scandalous. I mean, think about a time, right, when you were trying to learn something, right, or when you were trying to uh, do something, accomplish something. Maybe you were creating a business and trying to succeed. Maybe you were learning how to drive years ago, or you were trying to remodel your living room. If people come to you and say, you know what, I can help you out a little bit on that, or if they give you a little advice, saying, you know what, I think it might be better if you do it this way, if someone comes around and offers you help, what do you do? You accept it. You say, okay, that's great. But imagine if someone comes around and says, you know what, I don't know what you're doing. You got it all wrong. This project is a complete failure. That hurts. That's offensive. Right? That's a blow to our pride. And sometimes our pride gets the best of us and makes us think, you know what? Because of that, I'm going to persist in my way. I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, there are a few really bad driving habits that I have. And it's because when I was learning how to drive decades ago, my mom said, 
what are you doing? You got it all wrong. You're going to fail the exam. And of course, in my pride and in my heartedness, as this rebellious child, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I'm going to prove you wrong. And still to this day, I have these terrible driving habits because of my pride and my stubbornness. You know, Jesus is coming to say, you know what? You, there is no hope from within. I have come to give you that hope. And because of that message, the world is offended. Nathaniel McLean, once professor at Oxford University, said this. The ultimate scandal of evangelical religion lies in its intolerable offense to human pride. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It is that which the man of taste and culture cannot bring himself to say. He feels no need for such a salvation. If Jesus came along and said, you know what, I can offer you a little help, I can give you a little guidance, I can give you a little bit of enlightenment, the world would have accepted it. But because Jesus says what you need is salvation, the world hated Jesus. You know, humanity, we can look at the tall buildings and the grand cities that we've built, and we can take pride in it. Man can look at the farms and the irrigation systems that it designed to cultivate life, and we can be proud. We can look at the laws of the land and the orderly societies that we have around us and take pleasure in what we have accomplished. But when we look at the cross, the violent and the bloody cross, we see our true selves. We see what our true verdict was, what our true destiny was. Famed preacher John Stott said this, every time I look at the cross of Christ, it seems to say to me, I am here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing, your curse that I am suffering, your debt that I am paying, and your death that I am dying. Jesus through his cross, is showing to us our true condition. And this is the reason why the world hates Jesus. The world wants advisors, they welcome consultants, they want teachers, but they don't want a savior. Because to acknowledge the need for a savior is to declare the spiritual and moral bankruptcy that is within us. And the world hates Jesus for revealing this. And because we identify with Jesus, the world, Jesus says, will hate us too. The world will hate us, Jesus' followers, because we acknowledge the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' message that we need a Savior. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, continues to reveal the sin within us. And the world hates him for that. Now, we have to ask the question, the next question, how? How can the world still hate us? Right? If Jesus is no longer here since he's departed, shouldn't this hatred and this vitriol for Jesus and his followers, shouldn't these things die down? And the answer is no. Here's what Jesus says. In John 16, 8 
verses 8 and 11, he says this, and when he comes, when he's, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, even though Jesus is no longer around, this offensive message of the cross continues to go forth through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, even though I depart, the Holy Spirit will come, and the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, we see this immediately in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit is given in Acts 2, we see this played out. What happens? Peter, in Acts 2, as he receives the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he preaches about Jesus. He says, the one whom you crucified is Lord and Savior. And what happens? The thousands that were gathered to hear their sermon, what do they do? How do they respond? Acts 2.37 tells us, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Their hearts were pierced. And what do they say? Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, you need to repent and believe. And that day, thousands of people were baptized. A few chapters later, a similar scenario happens. Stephen, one of the deacons, he stands up among the people and he preaches a message, quite a similar message, of how this crucified Jesus is now Lord and Savior. And do you know how the people respond in Acts 7? They respond in this way. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. A more accurate or more literal translation is this. When they heard these things, they were cut in their hearts. And they ground their teeth at him. To similar sermons, to similar scenarios, the Holy Spirit is convicting everyone there of sin, righteousness, and judgment, yet two very different responses. One is faith in Jesus, and the other is hatred. And do you know how the people respond in Acts 7? The crowds, they pick up stones to kill Stephen. This is what Jesus is speaking of. They hated Jesus and the Holy Spirit as he continues to convict the people of sin, as he continues to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It will lead to more hatred. You see, many people thought that without Jesus, once Jesus leaves, many people thought, you know, this gospel is going to die down. It's going to lose its flavor. You know, French philosopher Voltaire said that, you know, Christianity is the most ridiculous and most absurd religion in the history of the world. You know, Voltaire predicted, a hundred years after my death, the Bible will only be found in a museum. You know, a hundred years after his death, the French Bible Society actually bought his home and set up headquarters at his house. The ministry of the Holy Spirit continued. After a hundred years of Voltaire's death, the ministry of the Holy Spirit continued. After the death and the departure of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit continued throughout and it continues today. And yes, even though we are more than 2,000 years removed from Jesus, 
even though we are more than 6,000 miles removed from the place where Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gospel has not lost an ounce of its effect. The message of the cross is still foolishness to some. It is still a stumbling block to others. But to those who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yes, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we understand these things. And I am telling you that with all the advancements of technology and science that we've seen, the only hope for humanity, the only hope for the world, is still only found in the eternal Son of God who put on flesh. This eternal Son of God who put on flesh and became a peasant Jew from Galilee. Our only hope for salvation is found in this man, this peasant Jew from Galilee who was condemned a criminal by the Romans, deemed a lunatic and a heretic by his own people, and hung on the cross naked for our salvation. Yes, this is still the message. With all the progress that we've made, the gospel tells us that the natural man, we have not progressed. We are still dead to sin, and outside of Jesus, there is no life. And this still rubs people the wrong way. It messes with our pride. Can you think about the absurdity of this message? That we gather here this morning on this mor- that we gather here this morning here, <clears throat> worshiping a crucified Messiah. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting his people and convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment continues. And until the return of Jesus, the world will continue to be offended by Jesus. They will continue to be stumbled by the cross. And those who follow, those who are called, will be continued, will will be continued to be hated by the world. Now this is a um, rather somber message because Jesus is making quite clear that his disciples, that we are going to be hated by the world. And so this last question that I want to ask for us this morning is, what are we to do? What are we to do? And I think there are a number of things that we can draw from and a lot of implications that I want to touch upon and be a bit more practical with us here this morning as we conclude. And I want to ask this question, what are we to do? Or what is Jesus instructing his disciples to do? And I want to ask, answer this question uh, by using questions. And so for those of you who are keeping notes, if you want an outline, This is point three, but we'll have three A, three B, three C. And the first question that I want to ask is, uh, are we identifying with Jesus? Or are we identifying with Jesus enough? You know, because for many of us, this hatred that the world has for Jesus' disciples is probably something that we have no experience of. When Jesus says, the world will hate you because of me, this is probably something that we here, Christians in America, don't resonate with. We have no experience of this. And the question that we have to ask this morning is, are we identifying ourselves with 
Jesus. You know, for many, for many generations, a large percentage of American Christians thought that this nation, America, they claimed that America was this grand Christian nation, right? For many generations, uh, you know, Christians thought here in America that America was this blessed land, that there was this language of God in the, you know, Constitution, and there was this belief that our founding fathers were believers, and for many, many years, people took great pride in America being this great Christian nation. But a few years ago, things started to change. Some very important laws started to change. And people, Christians in America, started to push back against this, saying, no, we need to take back our country. The Christian nation that it once was is being changed, and our nation is being taken away from us. And there was this cultural war that was going on, and many Christians were saying, no, we need to restore it back to the way that it once was. We are moving away from our roots. You know, there's a lot of good discussion during this time. But a number of good Bible-believing Christians, like Russell Moore and David Brooks, said, no, no, first of all, America was never entirely a Christian country. It was never entirely a Christian country. Maybe the majority of the Christians, maybe the majority of the population said that they were Christian, but at its core, at its foundation, at its constitution, it was not a Christian country. And then through these discussions, people started to say, you know what? Hatred towards Christians this is actually what it's supposed to be like. And there was a lot of good reflections during this time, especially a few years back when they changed the laws on, um, on same-sex marriage. But a lot of Christians had these really good reflections, and we started to think a lot more about what our position is in the world. You know, if Christians are ever the majority, and if the world is entirely accepting of the Christian message, then it means that there is something wrong with the faith that we profess, that we are not identifying with Jesus enough. In other words, if Christianity is synonymous with a country or political party or certain agenda, we are not identifying with Jesus enough. You know, Jesus says that we are supposed to be the minority. Jesus says that we are supposed to be hated. Jesus says that our message ought to be offensive. And you know, what's been going on in America the past few years has been a delight, at least for me, as we reflect upon our faith, our heritage, where we have come from as believers, and how, how the world, the, the disposition that the world has towards us, you know, and this question I want to ask, you know, if you've never faced hatred or hardship for being a Christian, you know, there may be certain areas in your life that you have not identified with Jesus yet. If we identify ourselves with Jesus, the world will hate us. But the second thing that I want to ask, because I think there's a lot of misconfusion here, is are we allowing the gospel to be offensive? And what do I mean by this? 
I've met a number of Christians that say, you know what, the world hates me. You know, I've met a number of Christians that say, you know what, the world hates me, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian, but when I actually sit down and talk with them, I realize the world hates you not because you're a Christian, but the world hates you because you're just a jerk. Okay? I don't know any other better way to say it, but the world actually hates you because you're a jerk. Okay? And I know I'm being a jerk by saying that. Right? I mean, there are times where I've sat down with young people and said, you know what, I'm being persecuted by my faith. You know, I got fired because of my faith. My boss hates me because I'm a Christian. And when I actually sit down and talk with the person, I realize, no, you're just a really bad employee. You show up late, you're a bad team worker. You're not hated because you're a Christian. You're hated because you're a bad worker. You know, when Jesus tells us that we will be hated by the world, Jesus tells us that we'll be hated by the world because the message of the cross is offensive. But Jesus never once tells us, you need to be an offensive people. Do you get that distinction? The message of the cross is an offensive one, but we as a people ought never to be offensive. The message that we carry is a scandalous one, but the people ought not to be a scandalous people. The offensiveness, the absurdness, the foolishness, the ridiculousness comes from the gospel, and it shouldn't come from our character or the lack thereof. So please, do not misunderstand this. Don't say that you're hated by the world because of whatever lack of character. But let the gospel be offensive. Allow the gospel to be offensive. But don't be an offensive people. And the final, the third thing that I just want to ask as we conclude is, does this hatred of the world make you afraid? You know, Jesus understands quite well that when he leaves and the world hates his disciples, the world hates his followers, Jesus knows that this is a scary thing. But Jesus reassures us. First, in 16.1, he says, listen, I'm telling you these things in advance so that when the world hates you, that you won't fall away, that you won't turn away. And he continues on. And he says, yes, while I am dead, while I am in the grave, the world is going to rejoice and you are going to be sorrowful. But you will see me again resurrected. And when you see me again, you will have this joy that no one can take away. And in his final words to his disciples, as he talks about the persecutions and the trials that we will face as his followers, Jesus says this, take heart. I have overcome the world. And you will overcome the world too. You know, if you think about Stephen, you know, the, the, uh, the deacon that we saw in Acts 7. As Stephen preaches this message and the Holy Spirit convicts the people and they're cut in their hearts of their sin, they pick up stones because they want to shut him up. They hated Jesus, they hated the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they hate Jesus' follower. And they pick up these stones and they're stoning him. You know how Stephen responds? In his final moments before he dies, he says this, Lord, receive my spirit. And then he cries out, God, don't hold this sin against them. Don't hold this sin against them. Does that remind you of someone? 
You know, as Jesus is there on the cross, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as he sees the crowd mocking and jeering and hating him, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Stephen, in his final moments as he is being hated by the world, identifies himself with Jesus by uttering very similar statements, by having the same heart. Stephen was hated because he identified himself with Jesus, but also because he identified himself with Jesus. He was not afraid of the world because he understood that Jesus had overcome the world. And now, Stephen, as he was united with Christ, as he identified himself with Jesus, he knew that no matter the hatred that came his way, he was also going to overcome the world. Jesus says these things to us in advance. To not be afraid. To not be afraid to carry around this offensive message of the cross. And if the world hates us, it's okay. It's okay. Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And you will too. Let's pray.